I'll ask the kids to come on forward. Those children that I've asked to go ahead and read a portion of Scripture. Come on up, uh, children. Justin, uh, Sierra, and Tori. Tori, you're going to be up first for us, so I'll put you in order here. Sierra right here and Justin right here. And Tori, come on up. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, our children today are going to read for us a story uh, from God's Word. And so I want you to step up on the first step here, Tori, right in the microphone. And I want our audience now, I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. Everyone close your eyes. Uh, Picture yourself some 2,000 years ago. You are in Jerusalem. And you are there because of a great religious feast that is about to commence. And sure enough, you hear rustling and rumbling around in the city. And there's a little bit of of a stir in the air. There are people who are gathering together. And they're gathering around a certain individual who's riding into town. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And the very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. With your eyes still closed, imagine that you were among that crowd, welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, His city, the city of God. And yet, you were a part of that crowd, waving branches, waving palms in the air, shouting celebration and praise to His name. And yet it wasn't a few days later that a very different crowd gathered together. Justin. Mark 15, 9-14. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the kingdom of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. And with your eyes still closed, now a few days have gone by and the crowd's tenor has drastically changed. They've gone from praising and lavishing recognition upon the coming King of Israel. And now it's all turned. In a matter of days, it's completely switched to the tune where the crowd has been stirred up by the religious leaders to now, instead of calling out Hosanna, Hosanna, Son of God, save us. Instead, they're crying out to that same man, crucify Him. Crucify Him. And you might think that Jesus, if He were one of us, you might think that He would look upon that crowd and think, my, how I've been betrayed. We might think that Jesus would look upon that crowd and think, my goodness, the same group that lauded me now hates me. But you see, Jesus looked upon the multitudes 
with great compassion in his final hour. Sierra. Luke 23, 33-34 And when they come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. When Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Heavenly Father, we recognize, Lord, this day, this Palm Sunday, that we're not unlike that crowd. That there are times in our lives where we are applauding You, celebrating You, recognizing You with our lips. And then there are other days, Lord, where our hearts are so far from You, where we turn our backs on You, where we look upon all that You've done for us and ignore it, even come to betray You, Lord. And yet, Your Son, in the story of Easter, has demonstrated that He did not look upon us as any other man would with thoughts of bitterness for our betrayal, with thoughts of wanting to get even with those who had betrayed Him. But instead, He looked upon us with love and with compassion. Father, we're so humbled by that. We do not understand how Your Son could look upon the same ones who put Him on a cross and yet ask You to forgive them. So Lord, we just bask in Your mercy. We receive Your forgiveness through the sacrifice of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we renew again this day that our hope, that our trust, that our faith is in Jesus Christ, the One who was betrayed and yet did not seek His own, did not seek His own retribution, Lord, but instead showed great grace and mercy and asked, that we might be forgiven by His blood. We thank You, Lord, for this wonderful season of remembrance. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's give our kids a hand for doing that. Thank you. That's the story of Palm Sunday. That's the story of Easter. It's a story of great lavishing and praise, of lauding Him, of of singing the wonders of the coming King of Israel. And yet, days later, that same crowd, stirred up by a different group with a different agenda, had turned on Jesus Christ. We, we learned last week, and this is listed on your outline here, that Jesus, yet, yet Jesus, He saw the worst in us and yet loved us and sought relationship with us. Go ahead and write that down. Jesus saw the worst in us, and yet loved us, and sought relationship with us. And if we are ever to be motivated, ever to be motivated to improve our own lives, to improve our own relationships, to improve our own marriage, to improve our friendships, Our best motivation comes from watching and meditating upon what Jesus did for us because He saw the worst in us 
And yet He loved us and sought relationship with us. Today, I want to speak uh, again along the same lines of the week prior on the topic of friendship. The title of my message is Real Christian Friendship. And today we're going to be looking at some of the qualities and some of the characteristics of a real Christian friend. And you know, the, the concepts of a genuine Christian friend are simple. You've undoubtedly heard them before. But as we noted last week, deep and lasting friendships are, are becoming hard to find. And so my hope is that we can return to some of these basic principles outlined in the Bible for how to be a good friend. In particular, I want to look at four principles. And we've asked the children to come in today and to be a part of this service because we wanted to express to the children as well what they should be looking for as they develop friendships with others and the kind of friend that they should be toward others. And so from the coasters on down to the third graders today, we want to look today at the issue of real Christian friendship. What does it look like to be a genuine Christian friend? On your outline, the first thing I want you to write down there of the four qualities of a genuine Christian friend, the first is this. A real Christian friend is impartial. Tough word, third graders. <laughs> impartial. I-M-P-A-R-T-I-A-L. Now, what does impartial mean? A real Christian friend is impartial. That means he or she does not play favorites. He or she does not look to see who's popular, who's most loved, and then becomes friends with that one. They don't look to see who's the wealthiest or who wears the nicest clothes, but they're impartial. They don't look at those outside and worldly characteristics. You know, friends, we tend to make friends with those who are really likable, don't we? We're drawn to people, and we're drawn to befriend people who are fun, who are popular, who are good looking, who are well educated, perhaps even rich. And yet, 3,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, Solomon identified a cultural problem in his, in the state of Israel, in the nation of Israel. And Solomon, as he was identifying this problem, he wrote in the Proverbs, it's listed on your outline there, wealth makes many friends, but the poor man is separated from his friend. Many entreat the favor of the nobility, and every man is a friend of the one who gives gifts, but all the brothers of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with words, yet they abandon him. Solomon noticed a problem 3,000 years ago in his culture. He noticed that people tend to only make friends with those who look like them, with those who act like them, with those who have the same kind of money and clothes and, and, and social status as them. And it's, it's funny how 3,000 years of history don't really change things very much, do they? Still today, in our culture, we see same social groups meeting together as friends. We see very little discrepancy when it comes to someone making a friend with someone outside their group. Who are your friends, I ask? Are they all popular and fun? Think about that for a moment. Who are your friends? Are they all lovely people who are witty and charming? Do you only spend time with those in your own social class? 
Then look at the life of Jesus. Who were His friends? Who did He surround Himself with? Was it not tax collectors and sinners? Jesus had a very different framework for developing relationships, didn't He? He sought out people who were very unlovely, very unpopular, who lacked a lot of the wit and the charm that we might normally look for in a friend. Jesus did not sit down though. He didn't sit down with such people, sinners and tax collectors, because of their inherent goodness. He didn't sit down to eat with them because they were popular or well-liked. Quite the contrary, tax collectors were despised. People hated them. But Jesus made it clear that He was seeking to form relationships with those with others that was not contingent on any kind of reciprocation on their part. Let me say that again. Jesus was intent on developing relationships with others, knowing full well that they perhaps could not reciprocate. They could not give back what He was going to invest in them. Whether they were pleasant to speak with or not, it didn't matter to Jesus. Whether they looked nice or not, it didn't matter to Jesus. Whether they were popular or not, it didn't matter to Him. He was perfectly impartial. He didn't play favorites. So much so, in fact, that He died for those who betrayed Him and abandoned Him. And I ask you, are you the kind of person who befriends others just because you want something in return? Or are you the kind of friend who's willing to love another even when they do not or cannot Reciprocate at all. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus tells a parable. It's listed on your outline. Let me read it for us. It says, Then Jesus also said to him who invited him, He says, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I challenge you, in the spirit of Christ's words here, I challenge you to show greater impartiality among those you call a friend. The next friendship you forge, think about this, the next friendship you make, let it be with someone who you would not normally think to befriend. Find someone who is very different from you. Find someone who is lonely. Find someone who you can tell just by looking at their face that they need a friend. I feel like uh, we, we can identify that just, just by walking around and, and taking a look at even those in this, this very sanctuary. We can identify who is lonely, who is hurting, who is in need of a friend. And I challenge you, as you form that next friendship, whoever it might be, let it be someone different than you. Let it be someone whom you would not normally pick to befriend. Be impartial. Befriend them not seeking anything in return. Secondly, on your outline, a real Christian friend is available. Available. 
Solomon again speaks to the quality of being available for our friends. And this is what he says in Proverbs 27, verse 10. He writes, Do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend, nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. It's unique how Solomon writes this proverb, isn't it? As you, as you look at it, he, he writes it from two different perspectives. Look at the first perspective. First, he speaks of how, how to be a good friend. He tells us how to be a good friend, doesn't he? And he says that we ought not forsake our friends or the friends of our family, our father. That we should, that we should not abandon them, that we should not uh, walk away from them, but that, that instead we should st- cling tightly to our friends and to the friends of our family. That we should not uh, let them go through life without receiving our love and our care. But then Solomon continues to speak about something different. He doesn't just tell us how to be a good friend to others. He tells us how we should seek friendship with others. He tells us in the next phrase there, then Solomon continues to speak about how we ourselves ought to seek out friends. And he says that when calamity strikes, we ought to rely on the friends that are nearby not those far off. He says, don't go to your brother's house that's far away in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor or a friend nearby than a brother far away. We're to be available to our friends and our friends to us. In some cases, this means nothing more, nothing more than just being there for them. Just being there for them. In some cases, it just means sitting down next to a friend who needs you there by their side. A number of uh, sermons ago, a number of messages ago, I made mention of a bad day I had had. And and nothing went right that day. It's just from the, the start of the day to the end of the afternoon, everything had just gone wrong in my day. And there were lots of problems, lots of frustrations and uh, I, I had in mind, I called home to my wife and I said, Honey, I, uh, I, I just need to go out with, with one of my friends. I need to go out and I need to take a break. And she said, Fine, go, please. You know, get, get what you need from your friend. So um, I, I actually called one of my friends. Uh, not, not from this church, so don't worry. None of you guys can uh, have any palpitations there. I called a friend and uh, I asked him, I said, Hey, can we hang out? And... Um, he said no. And I, I asked, well, you know, what are you doing? And I, well, you know, I got this, that, and the other. And, and as I heard, you know, the excuses coming in, I, I thought to myself, well, those aren't the greatest of excuses, are they? And I, 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 as the conversation kind of came to a close, I realized, okay, you know, this, this friend of mine whom I had asked to, to hang out with, I didn't tell him about, about my day. I didn't tell him what was going on. But I had asked him, hey, will, will you, you know, let's go out to eat together tonight. And uh, he just kind of came up with some, uh, what I would call weak sauce excuses. Um, Doug, you, you can define weak sauce to the kids later on. But um, it just, I, I ended the conversation and I thought, man, you know, that was a bummer. And then I called up another friend of mine who was also uh, not from here. But uh, I called him up and I said, hey man, I, I, need, I need to you know, hang out tonight. And he said, sure, come on down. And so we, we drove, we met halfway, we had dinner. You know that I didn't tell him one thing about my day? 
I didn't have to. All I needed was for Him to say, yeah, I'll meet you. We had dinner. We sat there. We ate our burgers. We chit-chatted a little bit. We talked about life. We kicked the breeze. And at the end of the day, I drove home. My wife said, well, how'd it go? Did you get everything off your chest? You know, did you have a real heart-to-heart? And I said, you know what? I didn't even need to tell Him anything. I just needed Him to be there. Guys, you can relate, right? A lot of guys can. Sometimes a man in particular, ladies, this is probably not true of you, but sometimes a man in particular, he just needs one of his friends to just be there. To just grab a bite with him. To go out, to get a cup of coffee, and just be there for him. Do not forsake your friend. Neither should you go far, far, far away to receive the kind of nurture and care that you're seeking. Solomon says, look for it around you. Find someone. Find a group of friends around you who can be there for you in a time of trouble. I came home refreshed and renewed that day because I had one friend who said, yeah, I'll be there. Do, you, do your friends know that they can call you anytime? Will you say yes when they call? Or will you come up with some excuses? And a quick word again um, to the ladies. I mean, ladies, you know, uh, when your husband has that bad day at work and comes home, you should be the one telling him, go, call up one of your friends. Go spend time with them. And get refreshed. Get renewed. Men, when your wife's friend calls late in the evening and says that she needs to grab a cup of coffee with your wife, you need to encourage your wife, go. I'll take care of the kids. I'll take care of dinner. Your wife's friend needs, needs her more than you need her that night. And so, spouses, let the husband, let the wife go and minister in that way, even if it's last minute, even if it's a last hour call. Do your friends know that they can call on you anytime? Will you say yes? Will you say yes when your friend calls? Thirdly, on your outline, a real Christian friend is helpful. Helpful. Proverbs 3, verses 27 and 28. Solomon writes, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you right now. You know, when you, when you pause and consider the, the meaning of this passage, you come to realize that the teaching is really revolutionary. We, we can fly through it, fly through this passage. But when you stop and look and study what Solomon has written here, the teaching is revolutionary. Solomon is very clear. He says, when there is a need, and when you have the power to meet that need, he says, do it. When there is a need before your eyes, and you have the power in your hand, you have the time, the resources, whatever it takes to meet that need, the Bible says, do it. James echoes Solomon's words in James 2 on your outline there. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, well, depart in peace, 
Be warm. Be filled. But you don't give them the things which are needed for the body? What is it profit? What good is it? If all you say when someone comes to you and, and, and pours out their heart and says, you know, I, I'm, we're really struggling this month. We're, we're not even sure that we can make the rent this month. And you say, hey, I'll see you next week. And you walk away from them. And you do nothing? When someone comes to you and, and says, hey, you know, uh, my husband and I, we, we got into a fight. And uh, just it was not really good last night. We're, just, we're really struggling. Imagine if you just say, oh, well, I'll pray for you. Okay, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. And how often is that our response? When someone comes to us hurting or in need, and we have the time and the resources to do something about that need, Solomon and James say, meet it. Do it. Nothing is more important. If there is a real need and you have the capability to meet it, then do it. I'm not talking about wins here. I'm not talking about the friend who complains that they don't have uh, cable TV. I'm not talking about the friend who whines that they need a new iPhone or a new iPad or a new iPod or whatever the, the latest i is. Okay, These are not the needs. These are not the, 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 the true needs of a person who's next to you. But if the person who crosses your path has a need for, for food, for shelter, for clothing, to find work, for you to just be there and be a listening ear because they're going through a tremendous strain, a tremendous struggle, then the Bible tells us that a real Christian friend is someone who will stop and who will meet that actual need right then and there within their capability. And so if there is a friend, if there is a friend who is coming up short on the rent this month, and you have the ability to meet that need, you need to consider meeting it. That's what the Bible says. After all, that, your money's not yours. It's the Lord's. Moms, if there is a family who are struggling to make ends meet, maybe both parents are working, and yet the, ch- the cost of child care is so high that even with both their salaries, they can't make ends meet. Perhaps what you have in your hand is the ability to watch their kids a day or two a week, free of charge, just to be a ministry to them, just to be a help to them. Men, are you capable with your hands? Grab your son one Saturday and go around and find out if there's an elderly couple or a widow in your neighborhood or within the church that could use some repair job to fix something. Heck, it doesn't even need to be an elderly couple. It could be me. I don't know how to fix anything. I asked, uh, I asked Dustin to come over one day. I said, Dustin, my garbage disposal, man, it's not working. I've tried everything, you know, and he looks at it and he, uh, he presses a button. And then he goes over and sure enough, it worked. Right, Dustin? Elderly couple. <laughs> Infirmed. I don't know how to do it. I'm quite sure though that there are widows and, and those in this church that could use someone like that to come to their house and press a button. In our neighborhood, we had a family knock on the door one day. And uh, we opened the door, 
And there they were. We, we recognized them. We didn't know their names because they kind of lived further down the street. Uh, they, went to, they go to Saddleback Church and they said, hey, we're here because our church is doing a uh, campaign. Uh, we're taking the weekend and we're serving our neighbors. We thought, wow, what a, what a wonderful thing. I mean, that, that's a, a wonderful thing that, that Saddleback Church uh, does. And they, they did this ca- campus-wide thing where all the people of Saddleback that particular weekend, you might have gotten a knock on your door from someone from Saddleback. And they said, what can we do to serve you? How can we be helpful to you? And you know, our typical reaction, Casey and I, was to say, oh no, no, we don't need anything. You know, it's okay. You don't need to help us. But then I, I got to thinking, you know, the Lord wants us to receive the ministry of others. He wants us to receive help from another when they're able to give it. And so we thought, well, okay. Uh, we kind of looked around our house, and, and those of you who know uh, um, the Andersons, uh, you know that there are two things we can't keep clean. The garage and our car. And so uh, everything else is pretty clean in our house, but I'm in charge of the garage and the cars, and so you can tell... I think Erin went in our garage at a, at a baby shower the other day and she got a, a rude awakening what was in there. So, sorry Erin. But we turned to them and we said, could, could you wash our car? And they said, sure. And so they proceeded to wash our car. The whole family washed our car right there while we're in the house just kind of looking at them and feeling very awkward. But you know, um, it was simple. They washed our car. But every time we see them now, Casey and I have thoughts of love and appreciation for them. Our relationship toward them has grown, and all because of a simple car wash. How much more so will your friendships grow when you meet actual needs? When you meet real needs? When you say, you're short $300 for rent? I'll pay it. When you say, You need someone to watch your kids? I'll do it. Imagine the impact that that will have on your relationships. Imagine the impact it would have on someone who was a brand new friend of yours. Someone you had just chosen to minister to. Fourth and finally, another hard one to spell, third graders and through sixth graders. A real Christian friend is exhortative. I've actually written it for you in the next line there. Define exhortative. A real Christian friend is exhortative. You say, well, what is exhortative? Good question. Exhortative means to be edifying, to be instructive, to give knowledge, to give enlightenment, to give counsel, to give rebuke when needed. We've learned that we're always called to be impartial toward our friends. We're not to play favorites. We're to love them no matter who they are, no matter what they say or do. But that doesn't mean we're, because we're impartial, that doesn't mean we're disinterested. Quite the contrary, we're very interested in their lives and in the ways in which they live. And sometimes it's not simply enough to be available for a friend or to be helpful to a friend. There are times when the best thing a true friend needs is for us to speak to them words of exhortation and truth. Proverbs 27 is filled with admonitions in this line of thinking. Beginning in verse 17, Solomon writes, As iron sharpens iron, 
so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Jump over to verse 9. Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. Look over at verse 5 and 6. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Of all the qualities of a real Christian friend, it's likely the case that this is the characteristic that is to be implemented the least. It is to be held back in reserve, waited on for the right moment. We're always to be impartial. We're always to be available. We're always to be helpful to our friends. But this one, to be exhortative, to be encouraging, counseling, sometimes rebuking, this is the one we hold in reserve for when the time is right. But whenever a relationship lacks this element, whenever a friendship lacks this element, whenever a marriage lacks this element, then that relationship is not complete. You saw uh, the crowds lavishing praise on Jesus as he, as he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They lavished Him with praise and lavished Him with praise and lavished Him with praise. And yet the Scriptures are quite clear that if all you do is surround yourself with people who praise you, you're going to be a very incomplete person. Whenever a relationship lacks exhortation, that relationship is not complete. For if your friend is treading down a perilous path and you say nothing to stop it, what kind of friend are you? One of the things that we considered a lot on the elder retreat, uh, you, as many of you know, we went, we went away two weeks ago um, and we, we sat down with our Bibles and we just studied and studied and studied the nature of an elder. What, what does it mean to be an elder? What is the church all about? And as we were considering the nature of an elder, uh, three words kept popping up in, in the Scriptures that we were reading. It was shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. To be a shepherd means to protect and to nourish. To protect, to defend, and to nourish, to feed. And that's, that's the job of an elder in the church. He is to shepherd the flock. He is to protect her. And he is to feed her. The same is true of our friends. We are like shepherds of those who are friends around us. We are to protect them from danger. Protect them from evil. Protect them from sin. From walking down a perilous path. And we're to nourish them. We're to feed them. We're to give them truth from God's Word. Always from here. But when, when, is, when it's needed, when we see them walking down a road that might be shaky, we're to, our protection, our, our, our defense is to rise up of their honor, of their integrity, and say to them and speak to them words of nourishment, of truth, of exhortation, of counsel. Write down Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Go home today, not now. Go home today and read the first ten or so verses of Ezekiel 33. You'll read about a group of men who were called to sound the alarm when the enemy was approaching. And that if you didn't sound the alarm, 
that you would be guilty of those who got swept away by the incoming army. He said the watchmen, the people on the walls, those who are looking out and seeing danger coming, they're to sound the alarm. They're to blow the trumpet and say, watch out. Watch out where you're going. Veer over here where God's truth is. Because if you don't warn them, if you don't sound the alarm, Ezekiel says you're going to be just as guilty as the sin they're about to commit if you stay silent. Now this doesn't mean that we barge in and we tell people what to do. No, the ability to counsel, the ability to exhort another person needs to be earned. It needs to be earned. You can be sure of one thing. If you have not, in the past, made yourself available to your friends, if you have not, in the past, shown yourself helpful to your friends, if they have reason to question your impartiality, that you might abandon them if they act or speak in a certain way, if they, if they have reason to question any of these things, then your exhortation to them will likely fall on deaf ears. Because counsel is earned. But when we have earned the right, when we have earned the ability to speak God's truth into the life of another, then, when the opportunity presents itself, we should act and expect it to be received. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And in so doing, James says, you'll be the greatest kind of friend there is. James writes, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so kids that are here today that have stayed back in the audience, children, remember, we're to be impartial as friends. We're not to play favorites. We're not just to look at others and, and, and befriend them because they're popular or fun or funny. But instead, we're to find someone who's maybe lonely, who really needs a friend. And we're to go after them and seek them out. We're to make ourselves available to our friends. When they call us, we're to be ready to answer that call. We're not to come up with any old excuse in the book. My favorite TV show's on tonight. Sorry. That's not an excuse. When someone needs you there. And consider this, you don't know why they're calling. Perhaps they really have been hurting. And they really need you to be there for them. To sit beside them. To be available. Third, to be helpful. Not just sit there with them, but when the opportunity presents itself, to serve them. To meet their needs. Whether they have a financial need. Whether they have an emotional need. Whether they need work. To be helpful to them. To show them opportunities for, for them to receive, to have their needs met. And finally, and once we've earned it, we're to be exhortative. That is, we're to give counsel. We're to speak words of truth. We're not to let our friends walk down a path that is sinful or that is dangerous and to say, well, I guess I'll let them go and see what happens. 
I've made that mistake before with friends. I won't do it again. Um, some of you, uh, there, there are few, quite a few of you actually in this uh, audience uh, who I've spoken to rather frankly at times. And some of you have spoken to me rather frankly at times and told me some things where you felt that I could improve as a man of God. And I appreciate that. And I hope you appreciate it when I or an elder comes alongside you and says, hey, I want you to consider this. I want you to think about this. Watch out for the path that you're taking here. And of course, the question becomes, friends, are we going to be these kinds... Are we, to, are we going to exhibit these kinds of qualities ourselves? That's one question to ask. But another question is, are we going to receive the ministry of a friend into our life? Or are we going to keep pushing them away? When you need someone, are you going to make that call? Or are you going to push them away? When you need help, are you going to call upon your friends? Are you going to call upon the church? Or are you going to push people away and go it alone? And when you're treading down a perilous path, are you going to seek counsel? When you're making a, perhaps even an enormous business decision or a major family decision or, or, or you're considering the, the purchase of a home or a car, something significant in your life and you're thinking, am I thinking clearly on this matter? Is this the path I should be walking as a man, as a woman, maybe advice on raising your kids, are you going to be the kind of person who seeks out the exhortation and admonishment of your elders? Of those who have tread the path a little longer than you? Let's be available to our friends. Let's be helpful to them. Let's give them counsel when we've earned it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the qualities of friendship that are outlined in the Bible. We want to be this kind of friend, Lord. We want to be a friend who in the Spirit of Jesus Christ is totally impartial. That we look upon people and we look upon them with love and with mercy and with a desire to minister to them and serve them. Lord, that we would be a kind of people who are available, who are ready at a moment's notice for our friends. That we would be helpful We would not just pat people on the back. God, we want to be friends who really meet needs. We know that our relationship is going to grow as we do. God, we want to earn the right to give exhortation when it's called for. We don't want to sit silently when our friends, when our family are treading down a bad path. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to be intentional. To do it with gentleness and with love, but to speak words of truth when they are required. That we might keep our friends and those we love on a path that's walking toward you. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.